0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. I'm delighted that Nick Branner is joining us tonight to discuss the growing opposition to NATO and the need for a political alternative to the mainstream parties on both sides of the Atlantic. Nick's the national chair of the People's Party in the US, and he's also leading the rage against the war machine in the States too. In 2016, Nick was the national political outreach coordinator for Bernie Sanders. The night before the No to NATO rally in London, I was on a Twitter space discussion with Nick talking about the threat posed by NATO, Nick then took an overnight flight from Washington DC to join us at the No to NATO rally the following morning, where he made an absolutely brilliant and inspiring speech. So, I hope you've recovered from your uh, travels, uh, Nick. Welcome to the show this evening.
1: It's great to see you again, Chris. Uh, no to NATO was a fantastic event. I'm so glad that I uh, that I came over, and I'm I'm so excited for what comes next.
0: Well, it's great. We we're really, really, really pleased to have you there, and I know you were—you went down the storm with everybody, and I think a lot of people were amazed to know that we were on a, a discussion. You were in the states just, you know, less than twenty-four hours before, 10, well, twelve hours before, probably, and uh, and there you were—you emerged and made this brilliant speech, having been up all night. So, uh, I just wanted to know, uh, Nick. I mean, a, a lot of people will have heard of the Rage Against the War Machine, but I guess uh, quite a few people watching will not be. Overly familiar with the campaign and what you've been doing and how it's been going. So, I wonder whether you might just sort of give us a bit of background to the Rage Against the War Machine, when it started, how's it going? I know you had a rally the week before we had the No to NATO rally. So, if you could just maybe set the scene for us with that to start with.
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, Our Rage Against the War Machine protest here in the United States, uh, we did something really unprecedented. It was an enormous success uh, on February 19th. We got together with the, uh, as the People's Party and the Libertarian Party, uh, along with uh, Action for Assange, many other organizations, about almost a couple dozen, uh, and we rallied at the Lincoln Memorial. We brought together three to 5,000 people. It was an incredible event, uh, the largest protest against the war machine, uh, certainly since the uh, war in Ukraine escalated over the past year. And uh, and also even since the end of the since the Iraq war, in fact, in 2007. And so it was an incredible success. Our march stretched several blocks to the White House. We held another rally there with additional speakers there. Um, It was huge. And the reverberations have been felt uh, throughout the establishment, the, the kind of D.C., you know, war machine establishment. We were immediately attacked twice. Uh, by two different uh, hosts and anchors at msnbc uh, uh, Ann reed and rachel maddow who did ridiculous smear pieces of course the next day also uh, joe biden actually went to ukraine and reaffirmed the united states endless blank check commitment to the war uh, and nuclear brinksmanship and so but we've we've felt the kind of repercussions of what we've started it's really reinvigorated and revived the anti-war movement in the United States and we have a lot of plans going forward
0: well it's really encouraging to see that and uh, what you've been doing over there I think has, has helped to inspire our campaign here as well and I was delighted when we were able to make that connection with the rage against the, the war machine and the fact that we're you know we're building a transatlantic opposition to nato I think is is very significant, and obviously, as we've spoken about, uh, you and I uh, and others, the, the you know the potential to build a no to NATO campaign throughout all of the NATO countries in the world. And we know that there is a lot of opposition in other NATO countries. In fact, on the <clears throat> weekend that uh, that we were uh, meeting, and 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 the weekend before, then you were meeting, when the, these uh, rallies, these this opposition that we were. Uh, 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 outlining was replicated in many countries across Europe, wasn't it?
1: It was. It was. It was incredible. Uh, while we were meeting that weekend, you know, on that that anniversary of the war, the ninth, uh, there was fifty thousand people came out uh, in Berlin in opposition to the war, uh, with a led by Sarah Wagenknecht, who took the same approach that we did in the United States of bringing together people across the political spectrum from left to right to oppose the war. It was really groundbreaking in the U.S. It was great to see it happen also um, in, in, in Germany. And I know it's really shaken the political establishment over there, especially. Yeah, I in- know,
0: indeed, well, certainly, of course, but for hope. And uh, we need to sort of build those links that we've done between the U.K. and the U.S., with these, we should do with these other nations. I understand, uh, Nick, that there's going to be a vote today in the House of Representatives, a, a Syria War Powers resolution, uh, which would require, if it was passed, I understand, Biden to withdraw all the US troops from Syria. I mean, has the vote happened yet? And what do you think the likely outcome is going to be if it does?
1: There is. Uh, it's happening later today. Uh, it's scheduled to begin in an hour or two. And Uh, The Biden already claimed that U.S. troops were withdrawn from uh, from all of Syria. Syria, U.S. troops are occupying a third of Syria, the third, of course, with the greatest amount of natural resources, uh, the breadbasket and the oil uh, of the country. Um, And so there's going to there's this resolution proposed by Matt Gaetz to finally remove the troops uh, because it's an illegal occupation, even according to U.S. law, you know, let alone international law, that American troops are there—about 900 American troops—and so uh, we expect that the resolution, hopefully, it will succeed. I think that its prospects are not are are, are not that good, though. But it was endorsed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thankfully, uh, they're finally doing something uh, because they proposed a similar uh, a, a similar amendment in the last Congress. So we'll we'll see how it turns out in just an hour or two.
0: Hmm. I saw as well. Of course, not it was whether it was uh, how recent it was, but there was a a People's Party tweet about Biden telling China not to send weapons to Ukraine whilst he's flooding Ukraine with with U.S. weapons and also sending uh, substantial uh, sums uh, in terms of weapons to Taiwan as well and sort of threatening. The you know the Chinese mainland and and encouraging, uh you know Taiwan to essentially you know formally secede from
1: from China. I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, it's it's kind of astonishing, isn't it? I mean, the hubris is unbelievable uh, that the U.S. is telling China not to provide weapons to uh, to Russia and for it, its side of the war in Ukraine when uh, there's a 100- hundred. $15 billion worth of military aid and aid that has been provided, you know, $60 billion worth of which is weapons from the United States to Ukraine, let alone all the other NATO countries. Uh, and and the, the United States is simultaneously providing a billion dollars to Taiwan, trying to stoke another nuclear war with another nuclear superpower uh, and trying to give it a billion dollars in weapons and encouraging it to secede. I mean the comparison that I made previously was this was as if China would go to uh, the you know the Pacific they would surround Hawaiian military bases and warships they would give it a billion dollars of Chinese weapons and then try to stoke a secessionist movement and get them to break off the mainland. The United States would nuke China if that happened, and yet the u s is there in the South China Sea declaring every part of the world is our uh, dominion, hegemonic dominion of, uh, of, of control. It's, it's truly insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, perhaps you could just say a word about the Monroe Doctrine, which uh, I think you were kind of alluding to there when you said that if China did what the
1: US is doing and NATO is doing, uh,
0: that, that the US would, would nuke China. I mean, just say a little bit about the Monroe Doctrine.
1: Well, that's part of the great tragedy uh, of and irony of the United States is that the United States had its revolutionary beginnings in rejecting British colonialism and breaking off from the crown in 1776. And uh, then, you know, within, within about, I mean, almost I- immediately, <laughs> because it was conquering territory to the West that you know, it was uh, a part of Mexico or Canada or Spain or France, but or and of course the indigenous peoples of of all of, of the Americas, but um in this, but the Monroe Doctrine essentially is still the operating principle of the United States, except it's been expanded to the entire world. The Monroe Doctrine stated that the uh, the the Western Hemisphere was essentially the United States's sole a zone of influence and it wouldn't tolerate other colonial powers in europe uh it, you know meddling essentially in uh in latin america or the caribbean and it, it's kind of amazing that of course that's not applied or extended to any of the other major powers in the world be it china or russia and that shouldn't exist of course for for any country and so you know, it's still very much the operating principle of U.S. foreign policy, um, and, and it's gone beyond the Monroe doctrine. Now it's it's a Monroe doctrine of, of global hegemonic control.
0: And yet the, the propaganda that's pumped out by the corporate media, it, certainly in this country, and, and I think it's the same in the United States as well, is that it's countries like China and Russia that are... The aggressive, they are the the, the the real threats to world peace. I know if you look at the historical record, it completely flies in the face of that. But a lot of people seem to <clears throat> buy into this propaganda, don't they?
1: They do, unfortunately, because the media is all corporate controlled. And the media corporations, when you look at them, there's about in the United States, there's six uh, major corporations that control 90% of the media. And uh, just to take MSNBC for an example. The media corporations themselves, MSNBC, is a subsidiary of General uh, Electric. General Electric may also makes bombs. They also make uh, uh, military gear. And so, of course, that just gives the corporation, General Electric, the parent corporation, a massive incentive to have their propaganda wing, MSNBC, uh, just reporting in favor of more war over and over because it's just acting as the PR agency of the corporation. So, you know, that, that's why you always have the mainstream media cheering in lockstep with uh, the duopoly in the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans, and, and, and the rest of the military and industrial contracting companies, which are all merged together uh, and owned by the same banks and owned by the same parent corporations.
0: But the independent media is making a fight back aren't they and certainly in this country we've got some independent platforms which are getting quite a lot of traction obviously we want to build it up more we're one of the very small ones that you're speaking with us on tonight uh, but but people like jimmy Dore uh, has got a huge following and uh, you know incredibly charismatic and um an inspirational figure i think somebody who's had a real life he's not like a normal if I can put it in those terms, politician who has most of them, in my experience, you know, often from very sort of privileged background and don't live in the real world. But you know, people like um, Jimmy, of course, come from a working class back- background, done a real job, and has had real difficulties in his life with back problems, health difficulties associated with that, and not being properly insured, etc. And uh, so he's a great spokesperson, I think, for for ordinary. Uh, working class uh, Americans um and has got a big big following hasn't he? I mean I know he does lots of video shows, lots of podcasts, but also he's got kind of on a relentless sort of tour around the country and doing his live stand-up shows. I mean how how influential are the uh, independent platforms and how many of them are there over in the States, Nick? I mean, are they are they sort of um, on your page? Are they supporting, you know, the progressive uh, you know what you're what you're trying to do in terms of the third party over there?
1: Well, one of the things that brings us together is an opposition to war. Uh, And so that's really helped rally the independent platforms to support Rage Against the War Machine and, you know, opposition to NATO and the war in general. And their independent media has really emerged in the last um, eight or so years here in the United States, you know, following, of course, the advent of the internet, social media. It's created an entirely different kind of political landscape the ramifications of that are still reverberating you know it still hasn't settled it's still very much reverberating across society uh the bernie sanders campaign where i was the national political outreach uh coordinator in 2016 um it was a product of the internet it would not have been possible it was you know it was all it was it was very close to a political revolution in the united states Um, You know, Bernie Sanders should have gone independent at the end, run and run as an independent and broken the two party system. He refused to do it. That was uh, that was his fault. We're where we are because now because of his decision. Um, But the fundraising uh, was small dollar crowdsource fundraising. Uh, The organizing was, uh, you know, through the Internet. Uh, The uh, the media was through social media and independent media. You know, so that campaign wouldn't have been possible. And now, you know, seven years down the road from that, in 2023, uh, independent media has developed tremendously. There's, of course, a huge backlash from big tech that is trying to uh, deplatform and censor uh, in, co- in coordination with the Pentagon and the security state. All these independent platforms, but they haven't been able to contain it. Uh, and so, independent the the kind of influence of independent media has has grown uh, very substantially. For example, Joe Rogan who's the biggest podcaster in the world. He gets 11 million downloads per episode. Um, That's more than um, uh, the biggest uh, mainstream media TV news show, for example. Tucker Carlson, he gets about 3 million views uh, a night. And he himself is the only mainstream media kind of news anchor that will actually uh, oppose the war. He, He promoted Rage Against the War Machine. He'll talk about other anti-establishment issues. But CNN and MSNBC, in a country of 330 million people, they only get about a million or a million and a half nightly viewers, uh, their programs. And so, you know, people talk about the influence of the mainstream media. It's significant, but it's also way overstated. And the independent media is catching up to it, if not surpassing it in some places.
0: Yeah. I know uh, when Bernie was was, uh, running in 2016. That coincided with Jeremy Corbyn coming to the leadership of the Labour Party. And there was a lot of hope there. I mean, Jeremy won the leadership in 2015. We had a really good result in the 2017 general election, didn't quite get over the line, but secured the biggest increase in vote share since 1945 for the Labour Party with a radical programme, you know, a modest socialist. I mean, I think it could have gone further, but it was a modest socialist programme on the domestic front, but an anti-imperialist foreign policy—I think that was the thing that really frightened the horses more than more than anything. And I was looking forward to a a meaningful uh, special relationship with with Bernie in the White House and Jeremy in, in Number Ten, but unfortunately, all our hopes were, were dashed. And uh, yeah, like you say, we are where we are now. But I mean, I just, I'm just talking on, on on the issue of the anti-war theme. Still, I mean, what what we're finding in this country are that. There isn't. I mean, well, Jeremy. To be fair to him, is 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 Jeremy Corbyn still speaking out, you know, for Gates War, uh, and using his political platform in that way? Um, I think it could be maybe stronger in in in, in some of his uh, commentary that that he's that he's making, um, rather than a sort of, you know, the kind of playing on both your houses and sort of almost saying that you know the Russian the Russian. Um, military operation, and you know they're always as respons- almost as responsible as, as NATO. And I think when you look at the record, that, that's not the case. I mean, nobody wants war, but this war could have easily been avoided. But, but what we're finding, though, so Jeremy's that one voice, but he's not in the Labour Party. Well, he's in the Labour Party, but he's not a member of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the Reared state of affairs. He's a Labour member of the Labour Party, but he's not got the Labour whip, so he's not officially a Labour MP. But there are no Labour MPs and no other MP from any other party that I've seen, speaking out for peace, speaking out against war. And we're also finding that a number of the trade unions and the trade union leadership are similarly banging the pro-war drums. It's almost like a a repeat of what happened in this country in the First World War. I just wondered, Nick, what's the situation in... The states, with regard to the labor movement in general, what's the labor movement's position in terms of war, NATO in general?
1: Well, this is a connection that I'm glad you're drawing because few people in the U.S. labor movement, especially in the leadership, do make that connection. Uh, At the end of the Second World War, the United States had about 35 percent unionization of the workforce, and it's declined since then to about 10 percent. Uh, and in the private sector, it's only about six percent. And so the labor movement is a, you know, was a once mighty force in the United States during the Depression coming, you know, in the 40s and the 50s. But uh, what happened is that the labor movement started. First of all, it associated itself with the Democrat Party and, it you know, and, and it followed the Democrat Party wherever it went. And as the security state metastasized, which also happened during that same time period from the, the end of World War II to the present, uh, the power of the labor movement has declined sharply um, to the point where today they really, you know, there, there is beginning to be finally a resurgence in the labor movement, but they don't really threaten the Democrat Party. They don't really threaten the war machine. Um, and that's what needs to happen. Is that there's too much what's called business unionism here, which is the leadership of the labor party just you know works with those in the Democrat Party and does whatever they want. What they need to do is they need to break out, they need to help form a major new party in the United States that 71% of Americans want, uh, and they need to stop going along with whatever it is that you know the Democrat Party um, tells them to do. The labor movement back at its height uh, in, in the forties and fifties and during the depression, it used to fight for those policies that supported and uplifted the entire working class. They fought for a 40 hour work week, you know, they fought, uh, to end child labor, um, these things that benefited everybody today, the labor movement has been so beaten down that they're just kind of focused on their own, uh, individual contract negotiations. They no longer have this kind of working class consciousness, and they no longer fight for those things that would benefit the working class as a whole. And as a result, they don't inspire the membership, and they don't provide the leadership to the working class that they used to.
0: Yeah, I mean, a similar picture in 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 Britain, uh, unfortunately, um, maybe not quite as bad as that. I mean, the membership uh, trade union membership is, is substantially higher than that, but it's, it's it's much lower than it was at its in its heyday in the 1970s and and there isn't enough i don't think uh, here either emphasis on that raising of political consciousness there's been a you know a retreat into just kind of that narrow sort of focus in you know which is not unimportant but i think without that kind of political consciousness raising we're never going to sort of change a system that then you know obviates the, the 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 need for some of the struggles that the trade unions are having to get involved. With and of course, many people who are, are, are the most vulnerable workers are not in, they're not organised, they're not in trade unions. So, you know, they're being ruthlessly exploited. I mean, uh, you know, precarious employment in Britain is is endemic throughout the land. I mean, you know, millions of people are struggling on very low wages and they've got very high rental costs that so public housing has been decimated in, in this country. And uh, uh you know, and it looks like you you know there are similar difficulties that you're encountering over there but so with that said then, in terms of the labor movement um and obviously you've established with others the the, the people's party and and i think you just said that seventy one percent of u s citizens uh, support the, the notion of a of an alternative party emerging to challenge uh, the the corporate parties the republicans and the democrats interestingly that's that's reflected in a, in a similar poll that was undertaken recently, actually, I think only last week, a poll was reported that suggested that two out of three British people would like to see a new party emerge to take on not just the government, but to take on the Labour Party as well. The question is can the left in Britain galvanise the forces that are out there that are engaged in politics, but Maybe ploughing a very narrow furrow uh, to come together. That's certainly what we're looking to do. That's why the Socialist Labour Party and the Workers Party got together to try and push this uh, "No to NATO, No to War" agenda. And I think that sets uh, sets the uh, the trend, which I hope others will, will follow of the need for collaboration. But what's the situation in in the states, Nick? In terms of obviously the People's Party um, has been established now. It's it's certainly getting some traction from from what I can gather. Is it likely the People's Party could potentially pick up that support that there is out there for this third party to emerge, take on the Republicans and the Democrats?
1: I think it very well could. I think that as the People's Party, very much uh, like Jimmy Dore, uh, we are uh, embodying this political realignment that's happening in the country, and that is that there's an increasing recognition that Well, first of all, the two parties don't represent us, the Democrats and Republicans. They're parties, uh, you know, anti worker, uh, permanent war parties. Uh, But also, that the way that we're going to be able to fight back effectively uh, over here is that by uniting along class lines. This is a class war uh, between the working class, you know, 99.9%. of uh, of the public against a tiny number of elites that hold all of the money and all the power that control they've bought off washington they run the wars you know those are the people they they control the financial system they run the global oligarchy you know from wall street and so those are the that that is the reorientation in american politics that's taking place it's becoming increasingly clear to people on the left and the right that corporations are not our friends uh, especially when you're talking about big pharma, you're talking about um, the big mainstream media. You're talking about uh, health, you know big health insurance corporations. Back in the '60s, the kind of you know uh, movement that was anti corporate, that was very critical of corporate power, was ex- virtually exclusively on the left. But nowadays, uh, through things like uh, vaccine mandates and uh, the mainstream media hostility to people on the right, the anti- especially the populist right. Um, there's an increasing recognition on the right, as there is on the left, that these big corporations do not represent kind of our interests, and you know, run them up, they just squash working people. And so, you know, there 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 are the forces out there on the left and the right, and across the political spectrum in the U.S. to be able to unite that, you know, but. What we need now is to be able to have a kind of vehicle that enables to do that. One of the things that could do that in the U.S. could be a very galvanizing presidential campaign that brings together the left and the right, that kind of embodies this emerging, you know, zeitgeist and and spirit in the U.S. of, of fight back that unites people as working class people, as Americans against the oligarchy. You know, so that could happen. And that's one of the things that we're working on as the People's Party.
0: Because I mean, you've got other obstacles, I think, which we don't face in this country, um, to do with ballot access, as I understand it. Could you just explain that for our viewers? Because I think a lot of people will be quite astonished to discover the obstacles that you have to overcome in order to be able to even put up a candidate in the first place in presidential elections and, and state elections and so
1: on. It's a nightmare. Richard Winger, the number one uh, ballot access expert in the United States, regularly quoted in the mainstream media, uh, he talks about how the U.S. has ballot access practices and ballot access restrictions and barriers that you don't see anywhere else except for you know uh, dictatorships essentially. Uh, So in the United States, you have to collect about a million signatures to get a presidential candidate on the ballot. Uh, and then beyond that, there, uh, you have to follow specific regulations that are very granular and you know, extremely burdensome and difficult and expensive um, in every single state. So, every sing- so our ballot access process isn't national. Every single state has its own process and you have to get on the ballot in every single state individually. And that requires getting you know, tens of thousands of signatures in you know, every, uh, every state. Um, sometimes you have to get a certain number of signatures in every congressional district within that state. You know, uh, other times there's, there's other barriers that you have to follow. For example, they narrow the window of time that you have to get ballot access. Uh, they make it very, you know, just a few weeks. Okay, in New York, for example, you have just a few weeks to collect like 60,000 signatures now. Um, and so it's, it's just crazy, uh, all of the different, they keep adding hoops and restrictions and other things, you know, to make it more and more burdensome. They just keep manipulating the law because the truth is that the two party system in the United States is a completely artificial construct that is propped up by this legal infrastructure of, uh, horrendous ballot access laws. Uh, and other financial barriers, and if you were to take that away, it would collapse in an instant. The two parties would cease to exist because nobody supports them anymore. And so I think that, though, as the People's Party, you know, we believe that we, uh, uh, the public disgust with the two parties and with the policies they enforce of, you know, endless war and oligarchy are now so unpopular that you have that 71% record number of people who want a major new party, you have half the country who identifies as independent. And so that disgust has reached a level where it can overpower the barriers, especially now that we have the help of the internet. Ralph Nader in 2000, his run, uh, when he ran with the Green Party, he got only two minutes of mainstream media coverage, two minutes. Now we have our own platforms that can get the message out, and the media has to cover us.
0: Yeah, no, indeed, absolutely. Um, and let's just hope that uh, you know you can uh, you can get a galvanizing uh, candidate to uh, to run. Is there any any prospects of uh, someone coming to the fore? Do you think that will take up pick up the cudgels and, and run?
1: Who could be well like Jimmy's going the first it. person that comes to mind, like you said you know jimmy Jimmy would be a fantastic candidate uh that's you know it's 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 yeah you know only he and 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 his wife steph can make that decision of course uh there are other people who would be good, i think uh who would be great, and so uh we'll we'll see you know it's not something that um you know one of one of the dynamics, chris that I'm sure you're aware of is that the best people. Are often people who they don't want it, they don't seek it, and that's part of what makes them the best. Is that they they're not driven by ambition or careerism or money or fame. You know, they're driven by principle, uh, like Jimmy is. And so those people, you know, often uh, they they you know, they they're, they're not attracted to the idea of uh, 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 of doing something like this to their credit, you know, and if they did it, it would only be for the right reasons. It would be because they could break the two-party system, they could break the political system, and they could help millions of people um, in the process. And so, you know, it's it's someone like that uh, and someone who has, you know, a substantial platform and, 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 and following and integrity um, who could potentially unite uh, people across the country um, in, in really bringing down this two-party system.
0: I mean that was one of the attractions of, of Jeremy of course when when Jeremy um stood uh, for the leadership of the Labour Party you know he, he wasn't sinking it and he had to be persuaded to to do it really and he was very reluctant and and I think people did rally to that there was it was like a breath of, of fresh air and then you know and he was talking about socialism again and uh, and there was this massive appetite for the agenda that he was articulating and we hoped then I mean I'd been a member of the Labour Party well, before I end up being suspended, which we haven't got time to go into tonight, on spurious grounds, I was Jeremy's biggest cheerleader in the House of uh, Commons when I was uh, an MP. But we hoped then uh, that with the mass support that we got in terms of mass membership, actually, and, uh, and mass support for the policies, there was overwhelming support for the policy agenda, if you could get a hearing for it, but the mainstream media tried to divert people onto other topics that, you know, Jeremy was a Czech spy or he was a misogynist, lots of ridiculous things. And the one that got traction because of Jeremy's response to it, actually, was when they was accusing him of, of anti-Semitism and uh, and the party being riddled with, with with anti-Semites. Ironically, some of the people that were first targeted were themselves Jewish, actually, uh, but they were prominent pro-Palestinian campaigners and prominent supporters of, of Jeremy Corbyn. But we hope that we could. We could use the Labour Party as a vehicle to to really make transformative change in the country. You know, much more so even than that 1945 to 51 Labour government that did many many good things, but could have gone a lot further, in my opinion. Um, You've set up, I mean, in a similar way. the, The kind of parallels here, because. You know, I've given up, but the Labour Party is a lost cause. I mean, I, I, I believe our duty now is to try and kill the Labour Party and, and try and build this alternative uh, vehicle, uh, whatever form that will take. But I think it's absolutely desperately needed. I mean, are there people in the States saying that the focus should be on trying to reform the, the Democrats? Or, or have people now come to the realisation with the Bernie Sanders experience that the Democrats, like the Labour Party, are incapable of being reformed into becoming a genuine vehicle to to actually promote class interests? I mean, working class interests, not the, not the ruling class interests, what they seem to be doing at the right. moment.
1: The Democrat Party is probably the least popular party in the United States uh, because it is the party, you know, the Republican Party is the party that kind of, you know, openly disregards, uh, uh, you know, worker rights and Uh, you know, increased uh, wages and things like that. And uh, the Democrat Party, though, is the one that it was historically rooted, at least since uh, FDR in the 1930s and the Great Depression, in being more uh, progressive and in supporting, you know, labor rights, supporting higher wages, supporting uh, social programs. And yet, you know, with Clinton in the 1990s, Clinton basically repealed the New Deal, FDR's New Deal, and did away with all of that. Also, did away with the financial protections that you know had had uh, had been put in place by FDR after the Great uh, uh, Depression uh, and the collapse in 1929 in the U.S. And so, you know, that's why we had the Great Recession. And so, the Democrats repealed their own um, social programs, their own program. Um, and so, that's why they're so unpopular is because they claim. To believe something different from the Republicans, they claim to feel that urgency that working people feel in this country, and yet they act in a complete in the complete opposite way. And in reality, they just do whatever their donors want. They're completely captured by Wall Street, and so that's why there is such an opportunity. You know, there, there is no authentic uh, party, uh, major party on the left here in the United States, but there is an opportunity. To form one, um, and you know, and so and so that is what we're working on. It's very interesting to hear that uh, that the same thing is is happening in the UK. Uh, they definitely the two parties definitely need to be uh, uh, broken up here in in the US, and the Democrat Party needs to be the first one. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, more power to your uh, elbow then on that, uh, Nick. I mean, just finally, then. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think certainly over the last thirty years or so in this country, um, which has is, which is hampered, I think, the development of uh, a kind of class consciousness. Um, and that's kind of identity politics, really. I mean, the Labour Party, you know, in the past, historically, had, had always been seen as a, as a working-class party um, and had championed the interests of, of the working class. It, it always had had that trade union link, as it were, um, but uh, for a long time now, I mean, it, certainly, so-called New Labour under Tony Blair, they 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 put a lot of, well, all the emphasis really, uh, to you know, demonstrate their progressive credentials, if you like, was was around identity politics. But during the thirteen years that Labour was in government, although that government did did do some decent things, they did a lot of bad things, of course. The Iraq the Iraq war being you know, one of the of the worst, of course. Um, but inequality got considerably worse. You know, um, Poverty was still massively widespread throughout the whole country. The anti-trade union legislation, in fact, Tony Blair used to crow about the fact that there was some modest tinkering with the anti-trade union legislation that Margaret Thatcher's Tories brought in and the Labour Party uh, under his leadership, yielded I think to some pressure from the trade unions to repeal some of it. But then he went on to say, this was prior to the election, that even after a Labour government comes to power and makes these reforms, Britain will still have the most uh, restrictive uh, restrictive trade union legislation anywhere in the Western world. As if that was a a good thing. Is is identity politics a a, a major difficulty for you know developing a, an alternative uh, platform? in the States, Nick? Or or is that something that people are beginning to recognize that if you don't have a class consciousness, if you don't put into practice class politics, then everything else is really going to pale by comparison?
1: Uh, I think that's beginning to happen because identity politics has been an incredibly pernicious weapon of the establishment. It's, it's, It's really divisiveness uh, and a uh, uh, kind of a, dis- a distraction or a cloak uh, to economic populism that masks itself in a progressive veneer. Uh, and so it pretends to speak in the language of inclusion and, uh, uh, and diversity. But in reality, what it's doing is acting as a, cu- it's, it's, it's really dividing the working class and preventing them from coming together along class lines to overthrow the oligarchs, you know, and that's really what needs to happen. There is kind of a, uh, there's finally a backlash happening in the United States against identity politics and the idea that we need to, you know, define ourselves first and foremost, not as human beings, uh, uh, you know, who all have, uh, share similar needs for good health care, good education, good wages, good jobs. um, But rather uh, that we need to define ourselves by, you know, uh, uh, by literally as Martin Luther King said, you know, the, the color of our skin, it was Martin Luther King who said, we, you know, I I have a dream of a day when people will, my kids will be judged by the content of their character uh, rather than the color of their skin. And so that, you know, it's, That this kind of this push for identity politics is exactly against the spirit of doing that, and that's why MLK, in the end of his days, right before he was assassinated, was working on bringing poor people together from every race and gender and creed, because that's what scares the oligarchy in the United States. Is when you start seeing beyond their kind of uh, isolating silos in which they try to categorize, atomize. And isolate people so that they don't have conversations, they don't realize their common interests, and they don't organize to overthrow the oligarchy. And that's yeah. breaking down now, and it's about time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suspect that was one of the reasons that Fred Hampton was uh, murdered um, by the uh, uh, Chicago police and the, and the FBI. This the uh, was making very, very similar um, calls to bring you know for black and white people together to to fight you know the real enemy which is you know not not your neighbor it's 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 the bloody oligarchs it's the uh, it's the corporate elites so as it was. Nick that's been great thanks for taking the time to come on the, the show this evening where can people follow you on social media
1: of course you can find us at uh, peoplesparty.org uh, and you can also find me at uh on Twitter uh Nick underscore Brana and People's Party People's Party underscore US and you can, uh, you can follow us. You can support us. We'd love your, your support.
0: Great stuff. Well, thanks very much indeed for that, Nick. I uh, appreciate you coming on the show this evening. I hope everybody has enjoyed the discussion. Uh, Nick's a, a great advocate for uh, working class and for anti-war uh, campaigners in the States. And as I say, he was, you know, teamed up with us in the UK and it was great to have him in London speaking to the No to NATO rally on the 25th of February at Bolivar Hall. We'll be back next week. Uh, Hopefully at the same time, seven o'clock on Wednesday. So until then, uh, have a good evening and we'll see you then. Good night.